But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And the second reading is from Romans, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died for sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, and we we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, it's a great delight for me to be here this morning. And I love speaking on this topic. What we do with baptism in the end tells us what we think about the church. Would you prefer to be a spectator or a player? There's a difference between being a spectator and a player. There's a difference between seeing your friends marry and marrying yourself. There's a difference between watching a travel show on TV and actually being in the destination. There's a difference between seeing someone famous and knowing someone famous. There's a difference between watching the game 
and being on the field playing the game. There's a difference between being a spectator and a player. And it's a really important distinction to understand because it will impact dramatically what we think being a Christian is. For being a Christian is not being a spectator watching life over there, but being a Christian is being a player and having life, new life in your heart. Being a Christian is not merely about understanding disconnected doctrines, but it's about living life to the full. Being a Christian is not being a spectator, but being a player. For, brothers and sisters, we have been invited into the very life of God. There's a difference between playing in an orchestra and listening to one. There's a difference between watching someone drown or drowning yourself. There's a very big difference between being a spectator and a player. But if you're a member of a church, if you're a baptised Christian, you are no longer a spectator, you are a player. The church is the place where we learn not to be spectators of life, but participants in it. The church is the place where we play our part in God's big storyline. We play our part in God's family. We play our part in being part of a movement to change the world. We're part of God's story. We enjoy God's promises and God's presence and God's purpose for this creation. Now, many of the assumptions of those we meet day by day is the way you get connected to the big story is through social media. That's our great strategy for connection because through social media we could be a participant, so-called, with friends in the US or friends in Europe or friends in Asia all at the same time. But actually, though, we think social media will connect us. Actually, our world is increasingly fragmented, not connected. The world needs more church and less Facebook, as it turns out. Well, in Matthew chapter 3, where we're told about Jesus' baptism, we learn something wonderful, not just about Jesus' baptism, as wonderful as that is, but about the theme of connection, of being a player in the Bible storyline. Now, it's not you, you won't be surprised to hear that this event happens in Palestine with Rome controlling the people. This is a moment of Roman occupation. So Jesus has come to renew the people of God. John the Baptist has been preaching, asking for renewed commitment. The people he spoke to, to had already been circumcised, but now he's asking them on top of being circumcised to be baptised as well because in John's preaching someone was going to come and bring judgment very soon and the world would end. Well, Jesus comes and he preaches the kingdom, perhaps an imminent end to the world, 
but actually he himself is baptized the spirit does descend on him in baptism but it's not an end to the world it's a beginning of a new world Jesus baptized in the Jordan and that doesn't end Israel's story that renews Israel's story in fact these chapters 2 3 and 4 of Matthew's gospel show Jesus doing all the kinds of things that Israel once did but now Jesus is doing them perfectly Israel went down into Egypt and was rescued and what do we discover in Matthew chapter 2 but Jesus goes down with his family into Egypt to escape Herod's purge and comes back up out of Egypt like Israel had done in the book of Exodus or in chapter 4 Jesus experiences 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness just as Israel had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness and in chapter 3 Jesus is baptized in the Jordan just like the people of Israel in Old Testament days had passed through the waters of the Jordan safely and had come out into the promised land. What Jesus is doing in chapters 2, 3 and 4 of Matthew's gospel is renewing the nation, giving the nation a fresh start, showing what the nation should have done originally, but now he was fulfilling all that Israel was meant to be. He is Israel. He is Israel. And he asks John to baptize him as well. John resists temporarily, figuring that baptism was for people who needed a fresh start. And it didn't appear that Jesus was in that category. But Jesus insists to fulfill all righteousness. So this is the account. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Did you notice in that reading that the Spirit descends on the Son and the Father speaks to the Son that Father, Son and Spirit are all involved in this very significant moment. The Spirit of God has come to descend on him as a sign of the new world and the Father quotes the Old Testament, quotes Psalm 2 and affirms that this man Jesus is not being baptized because he's a sinner he's being baptized because he's the son he's the king he's the one who will fulfill all God's plans what happens in this moment is that Jesus is summarizing the story of Israel and he's summarizing the story of God. All of God, Father, Son and Spirit is involved at this moment. And at this moment, as Jesus is being baptized, he's summarizing the story of Israel. He's putting two stories together, the story of Israel and the story of God, a colliding, a connecting, uh, both together taking form in this moment. The Jesus' baptism 
is about being part of a story. The story of Israel and the story of God. Jesus in being baptised is showing that he's a player in the story. Where all of Father, Son and Spirit are involved in his life as his life reflects the big story of the Old Testament. Jesus being baptised was Jesus expressing the fact that in being baptised we are participants in a story, not spectators. And indeed at the end of Matthew's Gospel you probably know Jesus calls out to the eleven who were with him on the mountain and says, be baptised in the name of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He calls on his church to keep baptising men and women who've come to understand that Jesus is the one to follow, in whose life they themselves want to be connected. One of the most fundamental responsibilities of the church is to baptise people, to help individuals, men and women, boys and girls, to, sh to understand that they are part of the big story of the Bible and they are part of the story of God's life, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Baptism is about joining the story. It's about a beginning where we now become participants, no longer onlookers, no longer merely spectators who see life over there but don't have it in their heart. So what is the church? Well, if you understand baptism, you'll understand the church. Baptism is one of the best explanations of what the church is. For the church is the place where God's plans are being played out and where we become participants in God's plans, not merely spectators or onlookers. We discover in baptism who we are, who we are together as much as who we are as individuals. Baptism is not trying to tell us that we are escaping from the world. We're actually discovering what the true purpose of the world is and how we might be players in that story. Well that's my first point and I have two. This is the second from Romans chapter 6. For Paul goes on to explain something more about baptism after he had been commissioned to be a witness to Christ in the world. Paul is trying to describe to the Romans what a church should be. They were struggling with the idea of church because the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome were at each other's throats. Paul wants the Jews and the Gentiles to welcome each other. He writes Romans to help them understand what this kind of multicultural church should be like. 
And in chapter 6, he gets up to that part in the story where he describes the meaning of baptism theologically. He writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's not a, it's not a complicated idea that if you've become a Christian, you've put off sin, then you don't have any right to continue in it just so that God might be merciful and forgiving to you day by day. But he, his argument in verse 3 is tightened a little. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? He calls on the Romans' experience of baptism to try and explain something of their daily walk with the Lord. Don't you know that if you've been baptised, something of you has died, you can't go on living like you used to live. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Of course you're baptised as you go into the water in the name of Father, Son and Spirit. But Paul is saying here, but sharply put, when we're baptised, we're actually dying like Jesus died and rising like Jesus rose. We were baptised into Christ Jesus. It's important language. When we were baptised, we were transferred from Adam into Christ Jesus. Something happens that we join in him in a new way. John had preached baptism uh, into repentance. Paul here says we're baptised into Christ Jesus. It's like baptism is the doorway into that new kind of life. It's like a, a new connection to the cross of Christ. We were baptised into Christ Jesus and therefore we were baptised into his death. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was put into the water and buried, so he came up from the water and began a new life. And as you are baptised, you show that you're dying and when you're pulled up out of the water, as we hope you will be, you're pictured as living a new life. And notice that Paul never describes baptism as cleansing. We assume it because it's water and mainly we use water to get clean rather than dirty. But Paul never describes baptism as for our cleansing. It almost never appears in the New Testament. No, for Paul, it's not a picture of our cleansing, it's a picture of our dying. And you can only do that once, right? You can cleanse yourself every day. Some of us are better at it than others. But you can only die once. That's the way it works in our bodies. Paul goes on in verse 5. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice all the times that Paul is using the with, with, with language. If we've been united with him 
in a death like his. We shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we, become, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Hallelujah. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, brothers and sisters, must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Did you notice all the with language? That baptism theologically is about joining. It's about deep connection with Christ. Building on Matthew chapter 3, which was also about joining into the story, the story of God the Holy Trinity, joining, joining into the story of Israel. Baptism's all about joining. It's about actually something bigger than you. Yes, you do it. It's your body that's getting wet. But actually that's pointing to something bigger than you of which you now decide to be a participant. In which we have to start seeing ourselves in a new way. It's like the first year of marriage, I take it. You are formally married, the paperwork's been done, but it might take you a while to get to the place where you synchronise your diary with your spouse. You kind of still think as an individual, even though technically you're now joined. And over time, you might learn how better to coordinate your plans with the plans of your spouse but it does take time you consult about your social life you have a different group of friends you change the way you behave publicly and you try and help other people to see that you have a new status but that doesn't come overnight you are joined but you have to learn to see yourself as joined that's exactly the point that Paul is making here in these first 10 verses of Romans chapter 6. Yes, being a Christian is being obedient to Christ, of course. Being a Christian is receiving forgiveness from Christ, of course. But being a Christian is also celebrating union with Christ, which we don't think of quite so easily or naturally. Our deep connection with Christ and with each other is celebrated in baptism because it's celebrated in the church. The church is all about celebrating deep connections. Baptism's about celebrating deep connections and the church is about celebrating deep connections between ourselves and together and as individuals with the risen Lord. God is not the lifeguard who comes to help you in a crisis. He's more like the swim instructor who never leaves your side. So closely are we joined to him that we can never be disconnected from him. The point of Paul in Romans 6 is not to say that baptism is about our cleansing. 
It's much deeper thought here. For Paul in Romans 6, the point is not our cleansing, but our being interred, buried, exhumed, and resurrection and resurrected. Because whatever happened to Christ happens to us as well. That's how deeply we are connected to him. So Paul is really saying, do you, know what it, do you know what it's like to be a Christian? Every day you're dying and every day you're rising. Every day you're dying and every day you're rising. Every day you're turning from your sins, you're dying to your sins, and every day you're being forgiven and raised to new life. Every day. A few years ago I was at a baptism and the fellow who was being baptised was interviewed before he was baptized which is a great practice and the guy who's interviewing him said uh, tell me what it's like for you to be a christian and he said oh it's a my life's a lot like the life of our pastor so i did drugs i did girls at high school i kind of went went away from the lord came back later uh, and then the the interviewer had the good sense to pursue a little bit that very substandard answer and so he said, no, so what, 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 what is it like for you to, to be a Christian? He said, oh, well, just I'm, I, I feel like I fit in here because I'm a lot like the pastor of the church. And the interviewer tried a third time to get behind his understanding of what it means to be a Christian because he never said in being baptised he was going to be like Christ, dying and rising every day. No, he said being baptised is being a lot like my pastor. It's horrendous, horrendous. Yes, we're connected with each other because first we're connected to Christ in his dying and rising. When Christ died on the cross, I was there. When Christ was put in the tomb, I was there. When Christ was raised again, I was there. I'm connected to him. Whatever happens to Christ happens to me too. There's a lot of Christian spirituality that's about detachment where God is fundamentally distant and we have to kind of bring him down or make him close or get him to stay. And we, we get him close by intense singing or by intense praying or by kind of high degrees of holy living. Indeed, the song that I quite enjoy singing when I survey the wondrous cross implies that the cross is way over there and I'm way over here and I survey it in the distance. Actually, uh, I don't have to survey it from a distance because I'm with Christ as he dies. And my own understanding of walking as a Christian, living as a Christian, is that I enjoy deep connection as the gift that God wants to give. Friends, when you get baptised or when you see someone else baptised, of course, in part, it's a statement to your friends that you've changed your direction. I get that. But actually, baptism is not primarily a statement to your friends. Because we could make a statement in lots of other ways, right? We could just give a speech if we wanted to make a statement. 
Now, baptism is not just a statement to our friends. It's much more than that. It's declaring the gift that God has offered and that you've received. It's showing that you're part of a bigger story, that you're connected to the life of Christ and that every day you've come to understand that your duty is to die to sin and rise to new life. So many uh, Christians whom I meet think of baptism as a statement or as a sacrament of their conversion. It's a picture of their conversion. Actually, before it's a picture of their conversion, it's a sacrament, a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of God's offer before it is a picture of our response. And I think that's why it's great to be able to baptize children. Because it's a picture of what God is offering the child, not a picture of what has gone on in the child's heart. It's a picture of God's story and our connection, our being players or participants in it. And the story of Israel and my being a participant in it because of the grace of God, the gift from him to us. A sacrament is a picture of, an external picture of the internal offer that God has made to us in Christ. Friends, if you want to know what the church is about, you've got to first work out what baptism's about. And if you can do that, you're on a great path to understanding what God's purposes are through the church, through us, the body of Christ. Some people think as of the church as a place where they can tank up for the week ahead or their batteries running low, their spiritual batteries down to kind of one bar and they need to plug it in to, to load up again. A place where my needs are met. But if that's your default position, that it's the place where you tank up, where you, where you recharge... You might actually find yourself not coming to church but listening to a podcast. Because you could potentially tank up, recharge through a podcast, right? Or through hanging out with a couple of your buddies in a cafe on Sunday mornings. No, yeah, I get the fact that we want to recharge at church. But I am asking us to reconsider the purpose of church because it's not just about me tanking up. It's about us celebrating deep things that we share. It's about us being participants, not merely observers from a distance of God's plan for me or for our world. The church is more like a champion team than a team of champions. If you think of church as being a, t a team of champions, you'll take what you want from it and you'll do your own thing in your own corner. We all know the difference between a team of champions and a champion team as to what they can achieve on the field. The church is a champion team. We are participants in God's plans for this world. We are players in a cosmic drama. By God's grace, by his mercy, through baptism. 
We are his foot soldiers Monday to Friday because we are his platoon on Sundays. And indeed, the reason why churches traditionally have seats laid out like this is because that way we best understand ourselves as an army. That's how you gather on the parade field, right? In straight lines. To recognize the fact that we are an army for God every day of the week, Sunday and Monday. Friends, here in church this morning, we're meeting the Lord as his people because we've been deeply connected to him through baptism. So let me pray. Oh, please, Heavenly Father, make of this church a gift to the world around. Please help us all to see how we might be better participants and not just observers of your life. Please help us to make the corrections in our head and the corrections in our lives that will better honour this, the truth of your word. For we ask it in Christ's strong name. Amen. Sister. Hi. Yeah, sure. So the question was, uh, is there a difference between faith and baptism as the means by which we're united to Christ? Uh, there's two things we said. For, for baptism is the church's way of seeing that you're united to Christ, whereas faith is the personal work that unites us to Christ. So baptism, I think, can be exercised in faith, but I can never know whether you've exercised faith in your heart until there's something on the outside that alerts me to it. And for Christians, traditionally, baptism has been the clearest way of showing to someone that they've exercised faith. Now, with infants, of course, there's a, there's a snag uh, related to that. But it's the case, I think, that we should treat children born of a Christian home as Christians until they opt out, and, Christi uh, and people born in a non-Christian home as not part of the family until they opt in. So there's a different kind of dynamic that's going on in, in relation to faith for someone who's grown up in a Christian home or someone who hasn't grown up in a Christian home. And I'm assuming that uh, people who, uh, children who have grown up in a Christian home, they're being treated as Christians and that therefore they should be baptised and that whatever it means for a three-year-old to exercise faith, that's what faith is for a three-year-old. That is, you can't impose an adult version of what faith is onto a three-year-old given kind of develop, developmental categories. Right? So... Uh, I get that an adult, it's clear that their faith and their baptism are really close together and really easily mutually reinforcing. But I take it that uh, an infant can also exercise faith, more often than not through their parents, but nonetheless it's a kind of faith, it's a trust in the person who's been put over them. So uh, I'd want to say that, yes, in an infant it looks like baptism of faith are further apart. It's less obvious that this uh, moment of baptism is an exercise of faith. But I'd want to ask, first of all, the question, what does it look like for an infant to have faith? 
But secondly, to suggest that within a Christian home, that's the assumption in their daily in their daily obedience. That a, a, a kid being brought up in a Christian home has to opt out of the faith of the family of God. Someone growing up in, not growing up in a Christian home has to opt in. There are different dynamics at play. Two follow-up questions. Three for one. Yep. Well, um, baptism is the offer of God and you can decide not to shake on it. You can, uh, you can decide not to uh, take God's offer of grace and mercy and so walk away from his hand. It all depends whether you think baptism represents something objective or something subjective. And I take it that baptism is God offering something objectively. He's offering his hand in mercy and in friendship. And uh, therefore you can walk away from it because you can walk away from God's offer of promises. Uh, I think our default is to understand that baptism is something subjective. It's about what happens in my heart. And I'm trying to push back against that idea and say it's actually more about what God offers objectively than what happens in my heart subjectively. Sure, sure. So the question was, should the church regulate the practice of baptism? I think so. However, uh, we live in a country that has Christian roots and so there are still lots of assumptions about children receiving baptism from parents who don't go to church. And so I have a question about missiology. How much should we think about God's offer and their involvement in the fellowship in a really tight way? Or how much should we extend the offer of grace even to those who are children of unbelieving parents? So that's a question not of theology. It's a question of pastoral application. And, and Christians debate that endlessly. Brother? So the question was, how do we put into practice uh, Paul's instructions in 6.11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, so sin you can break down into some other categories. There's the power of sin and the guilt of sin and the presence of sin. And I think I can say when I'm tempted, no, this sin feels powerful. Actually, it's lost its power. And to laugh at it. That is, if you just use the word sin, you think, how on earth do I count myself dead to sin? But if you break it down into smaller bite-sized units, I can actually say, I believe that this sin is not nearly as powerful as it feels to me at this second because Christ has has extinguished its power and he's also extinguished the penalty. If I feel guilty because I've sinned, I need to make sure I'm not feeling guilt. There is no place for me to feel guilt because of my sins. Christ has dealt with the guilt of them. He's pardoned me. So I can actually emotionally, spiritually, put aside that feeling of guilt which will actually so weigh me down that I'll have less power to resist the temptation when next it comes along. It is true that you and I, brother, still 
experience the presence of sin in our lives. Uh, for my sake, anyway, I'm still a sinner. I don't know about you. <laughs> However, uh, I, I have to recognise that, that sin is still a live issue and that we're not entirely done with it. But if we break it down into smaller categories, subcategories, if you will, then I think we do have the capacity to start counting ourselves to dead, counting ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Brother. Yeah, yeah. But, but, it, but lots of things that belong to a child uh, are hard to explain in terms of their adult expression, right? So we presume that the child has a soul. I'm not sure how we access that. We assume the child is thinking. I'm not sure how we understand that. We assume the child is feeling. Sometimes it's confused. That lots of things about children are actually very difficult for us to categorise because they can't express themselves yet or because they haven't learnt to be independent in, in relation to the world. So the, it's hard to explain how a child would have faith, but it's also hard to explain how a child is growing into rationality or how a child is independent. Well, of course they're independent, but everything about their life is screaming out that they're dependent on their on their mother, on their father for care and protection, right? So uh, I assume that a child is trusting in God by trusting in his or her parents. That's the way faith works for a one-month-old. The one-month-old is trusting in the parents to give milk when there's a loud enough scream and thereby that child is trusting in God's provision through the parent's provision. Um, so I, I could use the example in, in Mark's Gospel where some friends bring a paralytic to Jesus and they dig a hole in the roof and let the paralytic down and Jesus says to them, I see your faith Behold, you man on the pallet, on the on the bed, you get up and walk. Jesus recognizes that all the friends have faith, and he's going to apply the friend's faith to the paralytic man so that he might walk. Sometimes it's other people's faith that Jesus applies to a particular individual. So if the parents have faith and have brought their child to baptism, then God is applying the parents' faith to the the account of the kid. So it, this is kind of the, the pastoral dynamics, which is great. And I've tried today to kind of set up the big theological themes that now we're applying in very particular ways. But even though the particular ways of thinking about children and baptism is complicated, I want us to pull back and remember the big theological theme, that baptism is about connection, connection into the people of God, connection into the life of God himself, Father, Son and Spirit. And afterwards, we'll struggle to nuance that, to, to apply that in very particular ways to particular people at particular moments. But that doesn't mean that the theology isn't true, even though it's hard to apply. Right? Yeah. And if you, if, if you think baptism is about being washed clean, then every time you get dirty, you want to come back to be baptised again. But if baptism is a symbol of joining Christ in his death, given that he only died once... And then he only rose once. Then you only need one baptism, right? Sure. So there'll be different people who stress something more than something else 
in all manner of symbols in life, right? Though, in the end, a red light is a red light and you can't interpret any which way you want. You stop, right? So it's the same with baptism. Yes, I get that there'll be people who kind of emphasise something here and there, but in the end, it's got to have a common meaning for all of us uh, because it's about our deep connections with each other and our deep connection with the Lord. So, yes, there might be certain moments when we stress one thing or another, but in the end, what I've tried to do today is actually say theologically, we've got to get that straight first and realise that we ought to, through baptism, have a common mind in our church if it's the thing that unites us in our church, visibly, right? And I just want to say as well that people will push certain interpretations, but you know, I have to force them back to the scriptures and say, is it valid? Is it valid to say that your baptism is a symbol of your feeling cleansed? I just don't see the evidence for that in the scriptures. Brother. Yep. It's, the, it's one of the highest descriptions of baptism in the New Testament that it has power to save, that there's something objective about it, that it's actually doing something. When you're getting baptised, God is actually doing something then and there. Though he does qualify it, right, in 1 Peter 3, he says, through uh, appeal to the resurrection. Uh, so he's not saying it's without uh, connection to Christ's dying and rising. Um, but notice that the flood of Noah wasn't about cleansing Noah. <laughs> uh, it was about saving Noah. It was about making sure that Noah was kept safe despite the dangers, not the cleansing power of the floods. So uh, I think Peter's kind of in agreement with Paul that in the end, baptism's not just about how you feel about being cleansed, it's a picture of God's offer of rescue. Slightly different, slightly different emphases, yeah. Keep reading 1 Peter, but don't ask me the question about 1 Peter 3 again. 